Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello, hello, hello. How low? That's sort of an inside joke about the movie we're about to talk about. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to talk today about Black Widow. Long, long, long in the gestation. Uh, now out, Scarlett Johansson is, of course, Black Widow. She is an, an Avenger. And, and she's kind of simultaneously dead and going through, you know, one of the real sort of pivotal moments in her life all at once, somehow. I don't know. I'm not selling this very well. I've got to do better. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about a sketch comedy called I Think You Should Leave. features Tim Robinson. It's uh, on Netflix. It is, I think, fair to say, kind of in its own category, sketch comedy-wise. But maybe the panelists will disagree. Who are the panelists, you may ask? Well, we've never done this before. This is, I think, the first time something like this has happened. Uh, one of our panelists is making a debut on the show today. After we used that very same panelist's uh, article as kind of a springboard for a discussion, uh, and now Raquel Benedict, the, art, the artist formerly known as R.S. Benedict, uh, Raquel <laughs> Benedict uh, claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Take that, Margaret Atwood. And she's the host of Right Good, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D podcast. And she's indeed making her nose debut today. Joining us also, Tom Breen, managing editor of the New Haven Independent uh, and uh, hosted Deep Focus on WNHH Radio. Um, so... Uh, maybe before we plunge in, uh, let's hear a little clip from Black Widow. I think I need to set this up, though. So Black Widow, I mean, it, it kind of opens in a way that suggests that it is going to have very strong elements of the Americans, including like, the opening credit sequence is kind of similar to the Americans uh, in some elements of James Bond. But the Americans' uh, idea is that uh, that Natasha Romanoff, uh, who we know as Black Widow or as Nat or whatever, anyway, the Scarlett Johansson character uh, was raised uh, in a fake um, sleeper cell American family uh, by a father named Alexei, uh, who's played by David Harbour, he of Stranger Things, a mother, Melina, played by Rachel Weisz, uh, and Florence Pugh, Yelena, uh, has been her nominal sister. Uh, and so uh, they are, they haven't seen it, they haven't been together as a nuclear family for a long time. They are several kinds of nuclear. Uh, and uh, they have just broken dad out of some kind of prison and they are having kind of a domestic reunion. All right, that was a long setup. Here we go. I just got out of the prison. I, uh, I have a lot of energy. Oh, please don't do that. So. Here's what's going to happen. Natasha, don't slouch. I'm not slouching. Yes, yes, you are. You're going to I get don't the, slouch. You're going no. to get the back hunch. Mm, listen to your mouth. Oh, my God. This. Up, up. All right, enough. All of you. I didn't say anything. That's not fair. Here's what's going to happen. I don't want any food. Eat a little something, you hey, you're going to tell us the location of the Red Room. You know, it's like when you told them that they could stay up late to catch Santa Claus. Oh, that was fun. You know, you come down the chimney, girl. Look out, where is he? You wait for him, and then when the cookies are gone, 
then you see he's there. No, no, I want, I what? I want them to follow their dreams. No, Reach for the stars, girls. Finding Drakov is not a fantasy, it's unfinished business. Now, you can't defeat a man who commands the very will of others. You get to hear there, among other things, how David Harbour's accent kind of veers in and out of several lanes. At times, it appears he's doing kind of the superhero uh, movie version of Borat. My father make toilet on my hands. We like, so nice. All right. So uh, first of all, um, Raquel, I'm going to have you kind of get us started here. There's been a long wait for the Black Widow. There's sort of a feeling, well, not just a feeling, there's a reality that Marvel launches movie after movie after movie with a male star centerpiece. Um, So I don't know. Going into this movie, maybe that's the first question. What were you looking for? What were you hoping for? Uh, Well, in my case, I was hoping for a movie that wouldn't make me feel like I'd wasted two and a quarter hours. Um, I'm not real sure how that came out. I just kept comparing the running time to things like Night of the Hunter, which was 90 minutes, (laughs) and Rashomon, which was one hour and 28 minutes. I just keep feeling like Rashomon got an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Why did this need two and a quarter? (laughs) Why does every Marvel movie need so much time? It's not Lawrence of Arabia. Why? Right. It is true. And I will say, I think I'm the only one of the three of us who watched it at home. And I just sort of hit the chess clock at a certain point uh, my first night. I just said, OK, I'm done for tonight. I'm clocking out. Uh, that's enough, Black Widow. And I'll finish it up later. Uh, but, I, you know, you don't have that choice. But you're sitting in the movie theater. And, and Tom, you, you did the same thing, right? You saw it at the movies? I did. My first time in a movie theater in 16 months. So, def- I mean, not to set the bar too low, but perhaps it sounds appropriately low. I was really just looking for an excuse to go to the, to the movies. And I, and then, and then this invitation came along. And I thought, Oh my God, I can spend a couple hours in a movie theater. I will see whatever. I will happily sit through previews for space jam and jungle cruise and this really bizarre looking Matt Damon movie. And I did sit through all those previews and, you know, I can't say those were the most enjoyable, but it was a treat just to be inside a movie theater. And, you know, to Black Widow's credit, you know, Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not my cinematic bag, but I may have liked this movie the most of anyone on this on this panel. Uh, I think that the, yes, the bloat was definitely there, but fortunately the bloat meant that we didn't just get hit over the head with like nonsensical action scenes nonstop, but we also got a lot of family sitcom, like what we just heard there. It wasn't the most, you know, innovative of dialogue, but I really enjoyed enjoyed spending time with the the family in quotes characters, and uh, I'm glad that the movie dedicated some some minutes, maybe hour, to that. <laughs> well, yeah, Could've you used know, a laugh track. I'm sorry. What did you say? Could have used a laugh track after every one of Florence Pugh's <laughs> little sarcastic lines, like "Oh, what a terrible way to die!" <laughs> Freeze frame credits, saxophone heavy 1990s sitcom theme song. You know. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that this movie was being asked to do, fairly or unfairly, uh, Raquel, is to say something or perhaps a series of things, either about the condition of women or about, uh, I'm not even sure exactly, but it was supposed to sort of redress a whole bunch of wrongs committed by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) And and it also attempts to say things, I think, about, I mean, really, you know, most of the action is driven by the characters played by Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh, and to a certain degree, Rachel Rachel Weisz as well. And David Harbour is this big lumbering stooge. Uh, And I, I don't know. I mean, is there any... Is it is it a mistake to go looking for justice in a place like this? And and did you find any anyway? I I mean, 
I, on the one hand, I think it's nice to have female representation in, in a movie, but at the same time, like, if you're looking for a deep feminist movie, you're not going to find it in something that has like a Burger King toy tie-in, you know, you're, you're, this isn't the place to look for it. It's like, oh, how come there's not more female breakfast cereal mascots? Okay, yeah, there's a gender disparity there, but I don't know if having like a, a lady tricks rabbit would necessarily be an important victory for womankind. It so would. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, I want to ask, wanted to ask you while I have you here for us uh, on this too about a, another thing. So the the piece that you wrote that got us <laughs> on got you on our radar screen and got us talking uh, was about sort of how in 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 superhero movies, Marvel superhero movies, everybody's sort of super attractive looking and sexy looking, but they're not horny. I think was what the headline uh, said. There's just sort of not much going on there and it feels as though if you needed any further proof of something to enter into evidence as an exhibit you've kind of got this one right yeah um, i mean something that i noticed is that during that really maudlin cover of smells like teen spirit they kind of blur out the word libido <laughs> Brian goes, it just kind of fades out. It's very strange. This is a movie where a woman gets knifed in the gut mm -hmm. and they won't use the word libido, which is not an obscene word. The only horny character is the, the big Russian dad who's, of course, fat because... Having desire, that that that's a sign of that you're not, I don't know, not doing paleo enough, I guess. If you're you know, you know, your reproductive system still works, you should probably restrict calories a little bit more there, buddy. <laughs> and it's kind of portrayed as ridiculous, but it's like the man has spent 10 years or however long in Russian prison and he wants the warmth of human connection with a beautiful woman who was once his wife. Like, what an idiot. <laughs> Why would you want that? Actually, if you haven't seen Rachel Weisz for a while and you, it doesn't stir up feelings like that, there's something wrong it's with Rachel you It's anyway. Rachel Weisz, yeah. of course. So uh, let me ask you one more thing and then I'm going to go over to Tom. And I'm probably going to get myself in a little bit of trouble asking this question. <laughs> but it occurred to me near the end that if there was any sexual tension going on at all, it might be between these, like, they're not really sisters, right? They're not biologically sisters. No. And I sort of felt at the end there was a little something suggested anyway. It could be just me and my filthy mind uh, between uh, the characters played by Florence Pugh and Scarlett Johansson. I, I don't know. I'll ask both of you. I mean, am I way out of line with that? I didn't feel it, but if it had been there, that would have rocked. I would have loved that. <laughs> Good answer. How about you, Tom? Yeah, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I felt that necessarily sexual tension between those two characters, but I do think that you're getting at again. The maybe the, I, I don't know if it's it's worth trying to explain the incredibly convoluted plot of this movie, or I couldn't even hope to try to explain how it fits into the dozens of other you know Marvel movies. But I do think that while this movie is replete with sexlessness, there is an intimacy in the family scenes. Yes, it, it does. It is worthy of a laugh track. And yes, the, you know, certainly the plot does grind to a halt when the family, you know, of these two fake sisters who are trained, you know, traffic children trained to become child assassins, stuff like that, when they reunite with their, uh, with their fake parents in this farmhouse outside of St. Petersburg, um, there is a, there's a, a warmth and a kind of an uneasiness, you know, these these people, I think what I so loved about Raquel's piece and her pointing out how, you know, Marvel heroes are such perfect physical specimens is that they often are so comfortable in their bodies and so comfortable rocking whatever situation they're in. And I found that in the, 
yeah, kind of strained, kind of jokey domestic scenes. There was stuff that I recognized from real human interactions. Now, that may be the lowest bar ever to expect from like a movie that probably costs hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And yet it's something that I still appreciated Black Widow was attuned enough to, uh, especially, you know, in comparison to the the other main thematic strand about female liberation by all of these, you know, brainwashed and kind of body controlled young women freeing themselves from uh, this, you know, uber bad guy played by Ray Winstone, which none of none of that felt real to me or really cared about and uh, didn't really make sense in the context narrative. But for some reason, the family scenes did and I kept wanting more of them. And so I appreciated that, you know, if intimacy is the right word, that's what I saw and felt. The I, I do feel as though, you know, the, the maybe the bridge between the first segment and the second segment is, you know, Tim Robinson will eventually do a sketch where like he's he's at, you know, Enterprise to rent a car. But the person behind the counter is a former widow, you know, because they've all got to find jobs now. They've all got to find uh, things that they can they can do with the rest of their lives. So I, I want to talk a little bit about Florence Pugh, because in a way, I think. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people in this movie who have not been in superhero movies before, but she's, I think, the most interesting choice here. And 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 Raquel, I mean, I, I feel as though she makes a decision that she is going to, as you suggested, play this for comedy. She's given a lot of opportunities to do that. Uh, and and the question, I guess, is you know, does it does it belong in this context or not? Uh, I, I'm sensing on your part a little a bit of impatience with it. I mean, I'm not against the idea of comedy, but it it just fell flat for me. The the quips just kind of felt kind of lazy. And there's a little bit of this pattern that a lot of the superhero movies have where they want to have their cake and eat it too, where they want to be taken seriously, but they're kind of laughing at themselves for the fact that like, oh, isn't this silly? It's a superhero movie. Isn't that silly? Ha ha ha. Like, yeah, okay. I get it. I get, I get that it's silly. I, I kind of prefer when superheroes movies just go like full on pure nonsense, just completely happy. I Probably my favorite superhero movie is Batman Returns, which just absolutely leans into the nonsense with like little penguins with rocket launchers strapped to their backs. And it rules. It's great. <laughs> Um, yeah, usually we don't go to DC for our whimsy. We go for, to Marvel for our whimsy. <laughs> but um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Tom, I, I, I just know from our, our pre-show confabulations that you, you do, you, you were kind of enjoying the way Pew tosses off some of this material. Yeah, you know, and if I was anticipating anything going into this movie, it's probably being able to watch Florence Pugh at, <laughs> again, because I've so loved everything that I've seen her in. Going back to kind of Lady Macbeth, she was in a bunch of Ari Aster horror movies. Midsommar was her kind of big starring role. And she was in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. She's an incredibly versatile actress. And I think that she brings her kind of toughness and brightness and that kind of deep emotional, you know, core uh that is layered underneath all of the uh the kind of trying to prove how incredibly tough and strong and and resilient you are i I think that she brings a lot of that to black widow and again i don't think that she or any of the other characters are giving material that like scarlett johansson again an actress i have a tremendous amount of respect for and really enjoy in black widow i don't think that they're given the best material to work with here but i do think that if there are actors who have that ineffable star presence who you keep want to watch because you know keep you know you want to keep watching not just because of what they're saying or what they're doing just because of the presence they exude on screen and how that presence connects to like you know, you're as an audience member's actual understanding of humanity. Florence Pugh and Scarlett Johansson kind of 
like have that. And I loved watching them talk together, even if they were saying things that I didn't find particularly funny. Um, right. Well, yeah. And by the way, Florence Pugh, um, if you want to see her do something a little bit closer to this, she actually was the star of a television adaptation of Little Drummer Girl. Um, hmm. And uh, it's probably as close to, although, I mean, she's, I don't think she's quite as, as comical in, in that one as she is in this one. I just would like to say, uh, Tom already just said it, but uh, I would just like to say a word on behalf of Scarlett Johansson, who I think is a really, really good actor. I mean, I, I, and, uh, you know, and I think she, well, one interesting choice about this movie is, in a way, Florence Pugh steals this movie, right? And and she's given an opportunity to steal the movie. And, and Johansson has the kind of more thankless job of kind of holding down the seriousness of the movie at times, kind of trying to lock down whatever emotional valences supposedly exist there. And I don't know. I, I feel like there are moments when she cries and, I mean, where I thought, wow, she's – there's something very emotionally real that she's doing here in this completely absurd situation where all kinds of debris and crap is flying down all around her. Um, and I guess, I guess, Raquel, I guess I'm maybe even introducing the question, does acting matter in, in these movies at all? Because uh, I sort of feel like it does. I, I mean, it matters in any movie, uh, I, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I I do prefer at least earnest acting over sort of an actor who kind of feels like they're above it and is just cashing the check. Of course, I mean that that that's even the worst thing to me. Like, oh, this is a waste of my time, but it's not a waste of yours. Thanks for the money. Like, uh. so where, where would you put? <laughs> I mean, would, do you feel as though Johansson at least is kind of making some kind of investment here? I mean, yeah, I I, I guess I just kept thinking about her in Under the Skin. I just kept thinking about Under the Skin watching this. It's like the polar opposite of this movie and wishing I was watching Under the Skin again. <laughs> I, you know, if, if I may uh, jump in, Colin, to, in response to the question about acting matters, I, I do think that in the Marvel movies, acting does and has always mattered. I think what's so frustrating is that directing seems to not matter at all. I think that the Marvel movies have been rightfully criticized. And Jonathan McNichol, the producer, pointed out in our email thread that there's a very narrow band uh, within which Marvel movies operate. And I think a lot of that has to do with the visual style and with the tone, that serial comic tone that you pointed out, and with everything that comes from, you know, the person nominally kind of directing how this how this work of art ultimately ends up, um, there is a house style that they have to stick to. And so I couldn't right. distinguish anything about what Kate Shortland, uh, the director here, brought to it that other directors have thought. Maybe Taika Waititi and Thor Ragnarok, you know, most yeah. burst from his shell uh, and brought his own, you know, sense of kind of kind of wry humor to that. But there's, you know, that it's it's hard in dozens of movies. It's hard to distinguish these really impressive directors working here. And yet I think the actors do the best ones do manage to stand we're gonna, out. We're I mean, about when I think of Marvel, I think of Robert Downey Jr. I mean, it's the actors that come to mind first when I think of this. Right. And I, I think I think Robert Downey Jr.'s performances in these Marvel movies are sort of throwback performances to like Thin Man movies and, and Cary Grant movies where there's this sort of debonair guy who, you know, is no matter what's happening, he's kind of got a certain level. I mean, think of Grand and North by Northwest, like really horrible things are happening all around him. And he's still kind of tossing off these little, you know, dry martini observations. And and I think, you know, Downey sort of movie stars that that thing uh, in, in, in Marvel to, you know, to pretty good advantage. I, I do want to spend just a moment here. I mean, I don't even know if we want to need to get into the nitty gritty of it. But so there's a controversy that I guess had erupted 
earlier, I guess I think I missed it the first time around, in one of the earlier Marvel movies. We should say that this movie technically takes place 11 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies ago. <laughs> so it takes place right after the Avengers Civil War movie, I think. Um, so, um, I mean, if that matters to anybody. Um, and there's some things that have, that have to do with the reproductive systems of people who are uh, forcibly inducted into this widow's uh, program of trained uh, assassins. And, and I guess there was sort of a, a lot of people very upset about the way something was set up uh, about the Black Widow uh, in one of the earlier movies. And I don't know. I just – I actually like these movies, and I actually had a like Tom. I had a pretty good time watching Black Widow. I wasn't miserable. I just I did have to break it into two chunks because you're right, Raquel. It's too long. But I wouldn't. I don't know. It's not Ibsen or something. You know, it's not like you should really mind this. For me, anyway, like I don't really. I don't remember huge chunks of these movies and the idea that, oh, they said this thing and it made, you know, a certain kind of injustice perpetrated on the character uh, into a very offensive thing that we on the Internet have to now deal with. I'm just sort of a little surprised that people go looking for things in, in that. I don't know. Am I, am I not being sensitive enough, Raquel? I, I get it. I mean, these are popcorn movies. Mm-hmm. They're popcorn movies, and that's fine. It's okay, you know. Popcorn's a pretty great snack. What what the issue I think is that we're missing a bigger conversation in which it's like, why is there only popcorn? Yes. Like it's like you go to a restaurant and there's one di- item on the menu that's not popcorn, <laughs> and everything else is popcorn. And instead of asking like, yo, why is everything popcorn now? Like what? Where's the where's the vegetable? Is there a vegetable anywhere? We're going like, oh, this popcorn kernel got stuck in my teeth. This, you know, we're like having the wrong conversation about that. And we're finding this thing. We're told over and over again that these movies are important with a capital I. These movies are important for women. These mov- these movies are important for everybody. And really, they're kind of not. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Just popcorn entertainment is fine. But it's like we're malnourished. And we don't feel good, and we're not really understanding why, and we're blaming the way the popcorn is cooked instead of like eating some fruit and veggies. All right, I've right. just got to finish. I'm texting this idea to Tim Robinson right now. A restaurant where they only serve popcorn. Popcorn. Right. You can't get anything else that's not popcorn. I'm just texting it to him in case he wants to use it. Um, so yeah, first of all, I thought that was exquisitely and beautifully put. I mean, the problem. I think that, Tom, that Raquel is also kind of referencing is, you know, yes, it seems kind of dumb to look for social justice or enlightenment in a movie where people are flying around. And, you know, um, on the other hand, these if these things become so culturally powerful that they suck up everything else in their in their turbines, you know, then maybe it does make sense to say, well, then you should you should get this more right than you've been getting it. Yeah, you know, I, I certainly I was was not aware of the controversy around the Black Widow character in a previous Marvel movie. Uh, kind of words coming out of her mouth to such an extent that because she cannot have children, she was therefore equivalent to a monster. Um, that certainly certainly in reading about it, it sounded like a uh, an inadvisable thing to put in, like the sole female superhero's uh, mouth. And um, but this movie picks that up with Florence Pugh describing in some detail the forced hysterectomy that she gets to her dad in one of the jokier scenes. But I also think that again with the, you know, if Marvel can maybe only operate 
in its in its serial comic tone. I feel like it handled it well in in that delivery. And I think that the movie, interestingly, you know, Alison Wilmore, a, a critic from Vulture, I think, pointed out how this movie really spends a lot of time kind of undercutting and overshadowing the weightiness of the the Black Widow superhero. Not only do we have Florence Pugh, whose character constantly poking fun at her and saying things like, you know, you're the, you know, this superhero who murders people who lots of little girls look at her, look up to, but also we have a scene of her like sitting in a trailer, drinking a beer and watching Moonraker. <laughs> like this is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a small moment. It's a human moment. It's a moment that I, I feel like in these big popcorn entertainments, ones that I, I hunger for because I can see a little bit of, of real life in there. And, uh, you know, I certainly would be very sympathetic to Raquel's argument before the pandemic. I think the pandemic has, has shaken and the way that streaming services have, step, have stepped up as distributors of all different types of, you know, different budget and quality movies. I do think that we are no longer, we meaning people who watch movies, no longer only inundated in this big uh, empty headed stuff. I think there's plenty to pick from. And so that makes me care a little bit more about what makes it into the 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 big stuff because I can watch plenty of more thought provoking things elsewhere, but knowing that a lot of people are gonna be watching this one, I'm interested to see what it has to say. All right, we're gonna pause. Uh, we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about, uh, I think you should leave. I keep worrying that I'm getting the title wrong. I, I know, no, I'm, I, think, <laughs> I think maybe I did just get it wrong. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to leave. You have to leave now. It's called something like that. It's fine to lose and to pretend she's overboard and self-assured. I know, I know a dirty word. Hello, 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 hello. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Um, so, in fact, uh, it is called I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. It's a sketch comedy show on Netflix. It's created by Robinson and Zach Kanan. It's produced by the guys from Lonely Island, uh, Adam Sandberg at al. Uh, and there's a big sort of Saturday Night Live set of roots here as well. Uh, he, Tim Robinson himself was a writer and I guess occasional performer on Saturday Night Live, although I don't remember him. Uh, the first season debuted in 2019 uh, and its six second season episodes uh, have just come out. Uh, July 9th of this year, there were some COVID delays like there are with everything, including, including Black Widow. 
The episodes are 16 to 18 minutes long. Uh, before we get the panel to talk about it, uh, let's hear a little bit of the so-called coffin flop sketch. I think this doesn't need to be set up, but let's see. They're saying they want to drop Corn Cop TV because we showed over 400 naked dead bodies on our show Coffin Flop. If you love Corn Cop TV shows, it's time to tell Spectrum no. They're saying Coffin Flop's not a show. It's just hours and hours of footage of real people falling out of coffins at funerals. There's no explanation, just body after body busting out of wooden hitting pavement. They're saying it's impossible that that many dead bodies are falling out of coffins every day. And it's impossible that one out of every five of them are nude. I don't know what to tell you, bud. We're just shooting funerals and showing the ones where the bodies fly out. They're saying, no way. You must have rigged something. I didn't do I didn't rig I've been waiting a long time for a hit on Corn Cop TV. I didn't do this. And every time you hear one of those noises, uh, the the bottom basically just sort of falls out of a coffin and a dead body flops out. Um, and I just have to say that right now on the site Vulture, which Tom Breen uh, referenced a couple of seconds ago, the, at least earlier today, the number one most read thing was an explainer about how they shot all the breaking coffins uh, in that particular sketch. With us today, uh, Raquel Benedict, formerly known, uh, the writer formerly known as R.S. Benedict, claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. He's the host of The Right good podcast. I'm trying to pronounce it so you'll find it. R-I-T-E-G-U-D. Tom Breen is managing editor of the New Haven Independent, and he hosted Deep Focus on WNHH Radio. So, Raquel, get us going here. This is, we should say, this is a series that it really has a a pretty avid and one might even say rabid following. The people who like this series uh, really, really like it a lot. What you heard of that clip, it's actually, you know, the jokes are mostly kind of visual there, but you do hear some things that are pretty typical of the of a sketch. It's a lot of Tim Robinson often raising his voice quite a bit uh, and often peppering what he says with uh, lots of uh, repetitive uh, expletives, which we had to delete. But uh, just tell us more about what your reaction was to to the series. Oh, gosh. I I love this show just because there's on, underneath the comedy, there's always this hint of almost like, well, obviously massive despair, but also almost cosmic horror. Like there's a an extreme just sense of the surreal to most of the jokes and 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 the horrific like the the coffin flop one in particular like okay what if the guy this guy's telling the truth what if he earnestly has not set up these coffins to collapse what on earth is going on why is there an <laughs> epidemic of nude coffins falling apart? What is the fabric of reality is coming undone? <laughs> well, you, you, uh, you, I think you're supplying, <laughs> and and when and I think this is kind of interestingly necessary with this series that you, as the viewer, are going to have to make some decisions on your own and maybe ask some questions that aren't just thrust right into your face there. And uh, so I think that's kind of spot on, really, what you're what you're speculating about. Uh, Tom, how about you? Where are you, just generally speaking, on this series? I I think that I liked it a lot. I maybe before I talk <laughs> about whether I liked it or not, I will say that like what are definitely facts. 
I watched the whole, like the whole season basically in one sitting. I laughed almost the entire time. And then I immediately tried to watch as much of season one as I could stomach before going down. So I guess that's the behavior of someone who likes what they're watching. And yet, I don't, I don't know. I do think that the like shouting as comedy is not my preferred style of comedy. And in fact, I think the weakest skits are always the ones, or at least the weakest parts of these skits, because these are, you know, each episode is maybe 15 minutes and each each episode has maybe three or four skits. So there's a lot of material to chew on. I would say the parts that really did not land for me are the ones where he's, where Tim Robinson is literally yelling. I mean, the, when the decibel levels go up, that's when I tend to enjoy it a little bit less. Um, the you know, it's funny using the word the quieter uh, mm -hmm. skits, such as, you know, the the putting a hot dog in a bun in his sleeve at an office so that he can eat lunch <laughs> while he's in the middle of work or where uh, <laughs> a character played by Paul Walter Hauser uh, makes some kind of offhand remark with Buddy, like to impress his friends about how he's annoyed by something his wife does. And then there's a 15 minute flashback about how incredibly kind and generous and supportive <laughs> his wife is. And then he feels so bad about it. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I just couldn't get enough, enough of. The awkwardness, the insistence, the persistence. But, um, you know, the, the shouting in the vein of, you know, similar sus suspended adolescent comedians like Adam Sandler, Andy Samberg, um, you know, not not my favorite parts, but a lot here to laugh at. You know, uh, Raquel, you use a term, some, something to the effect of, of course, massive despair underlies a lot of these things, which is not necessarily an of course with most comedy. But, no. uh, but, uh, but, he, but here, I have to say, some of two of these sketches, to my way of thinking, stood out at the end as so incredibly sad that I almost couldn't resume comedy after them. I would like it was like I had to go take a walk around the block. And I don't want to spoil if that's the right word to think too much, but just just to sort of drive the conversation a little bit. There's one where Tim Robinson has disrupted uh, a tour. Uh, and with just very inappropriate behavior, which could describe a lot of the sketches, inappropriate behavior is pretty much the stock and trade here. But then he walks out to the car and his mother is, the character's mother is out there and she asks him this kind of heart-rending question. And I just thought, wow, this is suddenly the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. And there's also a similar one where a father is doing a thing that, that fathers do, which is they, they, they convince their kids that they can't have ice cream or whatever because of some st structural impediment. And then there's a person sitting nearby who, who kind of on a wink and a nod agrees to join in with that and goes, that's right, they don't have the ice cream machine on Tuesdays or whatever it is. And it's Bob Odenkirk in this case. Uh, and and it just gets so freaking sad. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, Raquel, what am I supposed to do with all those feelings? I, that, how is that sketch comedy even? I mean, it, it it's comedic in the way that like Franz Kafka is. <laughs> In that there's not really any other reaction you can have but laugh because mm. it's so like heartbreakingly bizarre and it keeps going. Like the sketches just keep going. It's not enough for him to tell you that he's got doubles of all the classic cars. He's got to just <laughs> carry on for several more minutes and bring this man deeper and deeper into his despair and madness. It's amazing. <laughs> it's such a perfect glimpse into the void. It's just fascinating. It's it's like uh, somebody said, "Oh no, Edward Hopper paintings are really funny." Um, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Tom, I don't know. How, how, I, I, I feel like I'm lagging behind the curve of comedy. I'm, I mean, I was really kind of struggling with a lot of what I was seeing there, although I do want to mention some things that I really liked. But um, but maybe this is just sort of a place comedy needs to go, too. Like, well, what if we talked about, like, how sad a lot of these people are? Yeah, you know, I think that of all things, it's kind of a productive juxtaposition in my mind with Black Widow in a caricature like of a work of art in terms of what the stakes are. And this is what, you know, Marvel is infamous for doing. It's like, well, the stakes are always the annihilation of the universe. So good luck with that. I hope I hope the universe isn't annihilated. And oh my God, you know, a whole planet was just destroyed, but whatever, we'll move on to the next one. And then here, you know, and I think that level of constantly ramping up the stakes to levels that are just incomprehensible leaves a lot of viewers, including me, just not caring at all about what we're watching here things escalate constantly with a great example of Bob Odenkirk's sad man sitting at the table next door, not being able to, you know, settle on having doubles of the classic cars. <laughs> he has to have triples because, uh, because he's, he's feeling that, that bad about himself. That's a type of kind of escalation of stakes and investment in a character that, that actually does make me as a viewer feel that much more, feel that much more connected to him, laugh that much more, feel that much more sad about his plight. Uh, it's a real, at, at least for me, it was an interesting juxtaposition of like, you know, you don't need to bloat the universe in order to have a viewer care about what's happening on screen. But also you can escalate things, you know, beyond the bounds of reasonableness and still have it just be two people sitting in a diner, <laughs> like trying to talk a kid out of ice cream. Right. I think I also there are some like, you know, you mentioned the hot dog one, uh, not the hot dog. There's a hot dog one from the first season that turned into this kind of incredible meme. That's often how people know this yes. series. But uh, but there's uh, the, the one where the guy is about to have lunch. And what's kind of wonderful about that one is that instead of playing this wildly disruptive, super angry, obscenity-spewing guy. At least at first, Tim Robinson plays this guy who like, really was counting on having his lunch at a certain time. And he, he even said and they've moved this meeting earlier. And he kind of has this little frown. And he goes, can they do that? You know, and 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 I, they, I, to me, that was sort of an interesting manner. And then, of course, it gets more and more absurd what he does to cope with that problem. But there's, there's another one that actually does involve quite a bit of yelling. But it's a, about a, a man who becomes angry at the car ahead of him, which is not being driven effectively by its driver. And it just turns out this won't wreck anything at all. The, the driver literally, it's Tim Robinson again, does not know how to drive. Like, just doesn't know what any of the buttons do. <laughs> you know? And for some reason, the steering wheel hurts for him to, to hold it. And I loved that one because, I don't know, I felt, I guess, Raquel, I felt a little safer in that context somehow, you know? It was kind of like, you know, it was just, it, it was very, very funny, and I didn't have to really worry that anybody's life was being ruined in front of me. Right, and it's such a great, it's, it. I mean, answering a rhetorical question is always kind of great. a great premise. Don't you know how to drive? No, literally, I do not. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I got here. I don't know how this works. I'm very upset to be in this car. Oh, my gosh. And he kind of manages to, to make it the other guy's problem, too, you know, which I think is, is ingenious. You know, you're the one who's being a jerk because I don't know how this car works and you're being awful about it. And what if we're, you're going to a job interview right now and it turns out I'm the guy who's interviewing you for the job? You know, I mean – Tom, there, I really kind of admire how they've thought through this and just sort of worked out. I mean, it's unlike a Saturday Night Live sketch because it can veer off in two or three different directions as it goes along. It, you know, the I, I wonder if, if anyone else has their 
as you all were watching all of these skits, we're thinking, hmm, I wonder which one is best representative of whatever weirdness that <laughs> that I think you should leave is. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the calicocutpants.com <laughs> sketch. Because <laughs> I do think that that one, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but I do think that it embodies so much of what, we, what we've been talking about, what makes this show so unique of starting with a premise, maybe kind of like the beginning of the, the hot dog skit, where you have <laughs> a situation that whether familiar or not, just seems like huh, someone uh, was mildly embarrassed by something they did in an office context. And then a colleague who I think is a colleague is kind of difficult to tell whether Tim Robinson's character even works there, but he uh, shows up to bail him out and then it escalates and escalates into something where who knows, maybe he's being roped into some great Ponzi scheme or cult or it's a, it's a little, it's a little harrowing to think of what might happen to our protagonists in that, but calicocotpants.com right. is a I, real thing and you got to give. Right. right. We, so many of these kind of almost come across as like the beginning or the premise of an SNL sketch that just veers off deeper and deeper into the void. Like you could kind of see an SNL commercial parody for calico cut pants, but that would just be it. It would just end. Right. And right. this one doesn't end and it just spirals into pure madness. Although sometimes the sketches just end rather abruptly, almost the way an improv sketch will suddenly end when one of the improv members on stage just, you know, claps their hands or runs around in a circle and says, this is over right now. Uh, and, and in that sense, it's interesting to know. I found out that this season in particular, because they had a little bit more money, they would kind of overshoot and go back and edit these things. Uh, and I mean, they don't look that way. They look very raw and there's no place where a typical comic beat is ever happening. You know, this is these are not Seinfeld episodes directed by David Steinberg, where there's this kind of meticulous rhythm to, to jokes or anything like that. Uh, the, instead, it's like, you know, I, I, Tom, maybe the thrill that they're trying to deliver is there's no safety net. You, there's just any expectation you have uh, is probably going to be defeated. You know, I, I did read uh, as much as I could of that explainer about how coffin flop, the coffin flop shoot happened. And that certainly was, uh, well, thought through and there lots of takes and lots of coffins and lots of bodies rolling down. The explainer may have been a couple thousand words, maybe like 5,000. So there, there's a, a lot going into, I guess, making this, you know, 30 second uh, skit. But I... Yeah, I, I do. I do think I, I appreciated every, at the start of every skit. I really had no idea where it was going to go. And, you know, sometimes in, you know, a wash in Internet, you know, the accessibility of all types of culture from all you know, the history of recorded time. Um, it's nice going into something and really having no idea how it's going to end up. Right. I, I'm, we're going to stop here. I would say basically, you know, despite some of the enthusiasm that you've heard here, a substantial portion of the audience listening to the show is not going to like this series. <laughs> so I don't want to overpromise, all right? A lot of you are going to watch this and just say, this is just not working. Uh, so understand anyway. All right, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back.
All right, uh, we're back, uh, and uh, we're going to make some recommendations in just a second here. Uh, we've got Tom Breen and Raquel Benedict. Raquel, Raquel Benedict, I hope you're having a good time because we are certainly going to be asking you to do this again with us. Um, so, you know, let us know next time if you need, like, a better dressing room or whatever. Um, so uh, I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor, who I'm inexplicably pointing at right now, but she's on the other side of the glass. She's the technical producer. Uh, these episodes are almost always produced, the news episodes, that is, by uh, Jonathan McPants and that is the case today. So thank you to both of them. Uh, and uh, thanks to our panel, uh, Raquel uh, Benedicts. But you'll find the writing is going to appear often under the byline R.S. Benedict. So if you start looking for things and host of the Right Good podcast, Tom Breen, managing editor of the New Haven Independent. Tom, uh, get us started with some recommendations. I have two quick recommendations. First is uh, eight years ago this week, my partner Lucy Gelman moved to New Haven and I know my life is incredibly better for it. And I think New Haven's public life is better for it. She's the editor of the arts paper, incredible local reporter. Um, I would definitely recommend a, a recent obit she wrote, a very sad one, but a beautiful one about a iconic New Havener named Paul Hammer, if you want to dive into the arts papers catalogs, um, really beautifully done. But Lucy Gelman, always down to endorse her. Okay, I have a follow-up question about that before you get to your second recommendation. Uh-huh. Both Jonathan McPants and I feel that, that it is very unlikely that Lucy Gelman watched all those episodes of I Think You Should Leave. <laughs> she, I, I did convince her to watch uh, two episodes, and she said... I hate this show. <laughs> it's <the basic laughs> <life of stuff. laughs> it was more. It was more of a. I hate that you know, dumb white comedy by white guys kind of thing. But the the pithier version was I hate the show. Right. So yeah, Lucy, not a fan of that. All right. Second uh, recommendation. The second recommendation is yeah, talk about. I mean, I'm so grateful to be able to see even Black Widow in a movie theater. But for much of the past sixteen months, I've been watching movies at home on my laptop, on my phone, and a lot of that has been through the Criterion Channel, which is the streaming service of you know, the Criterion Collection, this incredible library of classic and independent. And, uh, and foreign cinema, and they put up kind of new collections, new uh, kind of uh, groups of thematically related uh, movies every now and then. And they have a neo noir catalog that I've been going through, and recently rewatched Roman Polanski's 1974 Chinatown. That you know certainly not a new movie, but one that if you haven't seen in a while uh, is probably one of one of the best ever. Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway at their best. And if you're interested in the awkward family dynamics of uh, Black Widow, there's probably no worse of a family than the one that Bridges. I was. Th- Thinking that, I was thinking there are some odd little echoes uh, from Faye Dunaway at the end there uh, that that lead us towards Black Widow. I know that's an impossible connection to make. Uh, all right, so Raquel Benedict, what have you got for us? All right. Well, first I will recommend a another movie about sisters called Censor. It just came out. It's an ode to the video nasty controversy of the 1980s. It's directed by a woman, and it's a really interesting movie with a whole lot to say about culture. I loved it. It was spooky and weird and interesting. Um, Where can we find it? Where will we find it? Well, it's in some theaters. Mm -hmm. Now I managed to see it in theaters. It was only in my local theater for a week. But if you can see it in theaters, get it. If if not, I I suppose it's streaming Mm -hmm. somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) But see it on the big screen if you can. Oh, gosh. Um. And the other bit of recent-ish culture would be Sayaka Murata's novel, Convenience Store Woman, which is about a woman who sort of escapes the expectations of the patriarchy by becoming a mindless cog in the capitalist machine and working at a convenience store. Yes. In our communications before um, the show, you did sort of make a linkage from there to the plight of the widows 
the yeah. the young assassins uh, whose whose lives and bodies have been taken over by Ray, Ray Winstone somehow. Anyway, um, all right. So I'm you know I'm increasingly struggling <laughs> to come up with things because I have to do them every week, uh, and sometimes my weeks are not all that interesting. But I was pleased first of all to be able to introduce my fellow panelists today to because in fact there is this very indie um, female vocalist. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I even know the name of the vocalist uh, version of Smells Like Teen, Teen Spirit at the beginning of Black Widow. Uh, so there's a Paul Anka version uh, of, of Smells Like uh, Teen Spirit uh, that is done. I, I, I would be willing to bet $20 uh, on the idea that Anka had never heard Kurt Cobain sing this, that his band leader just played through the charts for him, and then he just kind of swung it Vegas style, which is what it sounds like. And, and the thing is, I mean, it's really funny, obviously. Um, but there's sort of a way <laughs> in which it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, the, the music gets to pop out in a certain way as well. It's very hokey. He doesn't know what the song, he had no idea what the song is about. Uh, but uh, just Google Paul Anka, Smells Like Teen Spirit. It, doesn't, it won't take anywhere near as long to watch as Black Widow. You won't feel the way Raquel does, as though sort of time is missing from your life. Uh, and and you, you might laugh a little bit. And then I'm going to mention an actor who's in Black Widow who I'm increasingly intrigued by. His name is Ot. O.T. Fagbenli, uh, and you might know him from The uh, Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, where he plays the Elizabeth Moss character's former husband or, or still husband, depending on how you, you look at all of this. He's also in a movie called Five uh, or The Five, which is based on a Harlan Coben uh, book. Uh, and here in this movie, he plays the, this guy who sort of gets stuff for Natasha Romanoff. And there's obviously a little something more going on between them. There's a little, kind of a little hint uh, of at least a one-sided attraction, if not a two-sided attraction. But he's just sort of a very enjoyable guy to watch uh, and has an interesting way of playing his scenes. And he, there's a project that I think is going forward where he's going to play Barack Obama and Viola Davis is going to play Michelle Obama, which is kind of a reversal of the usual age unfairness where the older man with the younger woman, Viola Davis is 55, I think. He's 40, uh, but they're going to play the Obamas, uh, and they're both such terrific performers. I, I have no doubt that they'll be able to do it. But sort of watch this guy, because he, he, I think he's going to do a lot of interesting things. Uh, I mean, he, and he makes the most of his, his little bitty scenes in Black Widow, too, uh, as people have to do, I guess, in these Marvel movies. All right. So much fun to talk to you guys today. Uh, Raquel Benedict, uh, please come back. We will be asking you to come back. Uh, I would be thrilled, too. All right. Uh, well, we'll find out whether she means that or not. And it could be like a, a, like a Tim Robinson thing where we show up at her house and start, you know. Uh, you said you'd come back. <laughs> That's right. Where I don't understand. You, you said you'd you? come back. You freaking said you'd freaking come back. Uh, and uh, Tom Breen is managing editor of the New Haven Independent. Thanks very much for listening today. We'll be back next week with a whole bunch of new shows. It's cozy like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, the red.